Hi, I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. Each season, we sit down with writers from across the genre spectrum, so subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. All right, so today we are going to be talking to Claudia Kalb, whose new book is called Spark, How Genius Ignites, From Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers. I really, really enjoyed it. I cannot wait for this conversation. Um, And in it, she talks about 13 geniuses who have transformed their disciplines and become true pioneers. So I want to know, Kara, who's the genius who inspires you? This was such a fun book, and it definitely got me thinking about uh, about you know geniuses and, and how we think about them uh, across so many different disciplines. And, and it was a lot of fun too because you know Susie, you and I are often talking about writers and um, and and books so much on this podcast. But this this kind of like pushed me a little bit out to to um, to think about other genres. And one person that I have become a little bit enamored with during the pandemic is uh, a surrealist artist named Gertrude Abercrombie. She was an American uh, surrealist. She, um, she she lived in Chicago, and she painted these these paintings that I just like. I I first saw one um, fairly early on in the pandemic. I can't remember exactly what introduced me to her, but I fell in love with it immediately, and I just went out and started looking up everything else she'd ever done. I now have a print of her, one of her prints, hanging by my desk in my home office, and I'm totally I, I I'm just totally fascinated by the kind of painting she produced. And she has a, a really interesting life story too that that I thought about quite a bit in terms of how some of these other geniuses Claudia talks about in the book play out. You know, she she was born to um, parents who were opera singers. And um, she was also, um, in addition to being art, an artist, she was like heavily involved in the Chicago jazz scene, uh, like in the 30s and 40s. And, uh, and, you know, knew people like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Um, and she could also improvise on the piano. She just like had this range of talent that was so fascinating. And she's somebody I'd never heard of before, maybe last year. So I've I've been really enjoying learning as much as I can about her. Wow. She sounds really awesome. Yeah. Don't you want to go to a speakeasy with her? That, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, my genius is the total opposite end of the world and spectrum. Um, so I'm really into interested in Himalayan climbing, um, specifically cool. Everest and K2. Disclaimer, I will never, ever, ever climb these mountains, ever. <laughs> I like to experience it by watching and reading. And so you may have seen the documentary on Netflix called 14 Peaks, but it follows Nims Persia, who is a Nepali climber. He was a former Gurkha. He served in the UK military for 16 years. And basically he's he's just like shattered every mountain climbing record ever. He said, I'm going to set out and I'm going to climb the 14 peaks over 8,000 meters. So those are the ones that go into the death zone that with, with barely any oxygen. Um, and I'm going to do it faster than anyone's ever done. And everybody said, that's impossible. You can't do it. And I, I don't know what he said, how long he said he was going to take him under seven months or something, or oh in gosh. a year or something like that. And they said, you can't do it. So he named his project, project possible. And he raised the funds, he mortgaged his house to do this. And he smashed the record in uh, six months and six days. And like, to give you an idea, people trained their whole lives to go climb Everest. And he climbed Everest, Lhotse, and Makalu in 48 hours. These are all 8,000 meter peaks, <laughs> 48 hours. He like sped up the mountain. And if you saw that viral photo a couple of years ago of a huge line to summit Everest, Nims took that on his descent. 
he passed 95% of the climbers. Um, you know, he just went from one to the next. I watched another documentary with some folks summiting K2, which is called um, the Savage Mountain. It's killed so many people. And most people went home and it turned out that Nims was on the mountain at that time, climbing it and like helped this guy summit. So I think he just kind of really embodies what Claudia is talking about. He's a pioneer. He's dedicated. My gosh, how he worked. He also has the luck of like this extremely amazing high altitude physiology. So yeah, he's just been blowing my mind recently and he's got a new book out. So you all should check it out. I've got to go find that documentary now. That is wild. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm not going to climb those mountains, but darn it. I will read about him climbing them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm never going to be a painter, but, um, the, <laughs> but, 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 but I'm definitely going to find out everything I can about, uh, about Gertrude Abercrombie. Um, well, I'm really excited to hear about all these 13 other geniuses that, that Claudia writes about in her book, Spark. I'm looking forward to talking with her today. Along with Spark, best-selling author and independent journalist Claudia Kalb has also written Andy Warhol was a hoarder inside the minds of history's great personalities. Welcome, Claudia. Thanks so much for being here today. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. To start off, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked this book? Yes. Um, I've always been really interested in how people find their journeys, whether professional or personal how do you know what you want to become? How do you know what you're destined to be? Um, my own journey was a bit circuitous to becoming a journalist. I thought about psychology. I thought about going into pediatrics, um, even law. And I ended up finding my way to writing, which I always loved, um, even going back to childhood. So I was just very interested in people's stories. Um, I love biography. I love history. And I love being able to um, use current and contemporary science to kind of delve in to explore human behavior. I think this, this book is, is so interesting. I think for, I think everybody right now, people who are changing careers or leaving their careers or thinking about what they can do next with the, with the big uh, shakeup. And one of the things we really thought was interesting is um, how you divided the book into four categories and the geniuses into four categories child prodigies like Picasso and Shirley Temple, early adulthood, um, like Isaac Newton, midlifers like Maya Angelou and late bloomers like Eleanor Roosevelt. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes each of these categories so distinct and yet so very connected? Yes. Um, thanks for noting that. It, it is really a chronology of um, how you find your moment of discovery. So for prodigies, in some ways, they don't choose it. You know, they may find uh, an early interest that gets cultivated by parents or mentors um, to become who they become such an early age. Early adulthood is often a um, discovery in teenage or early adult, you know, tw early 20s, finding something that interests somebody that may not actually come to the fore till later, um, but is, is an early interest that then develops throughout adulthood. The midlifers, um, like Maya Angelou um, and Julia Child, discover something at midlife where their experience beforehand matters. And it's at that moment of midlife that they are able to kind of grasp that experience and use it to propel themselves forward. And then the late bloomers are interesting. They're often a, a different kind of mix. Some, um, in the case of Roger, who published Roger's Thesaurus, rediscovering a childhood passion. Um, and then others finally being able to, to, to sort of turn to something um, new and different. And um, you have uh, Anna Mar Mary Robertson Moses, the artist, um, turning to painting in her 70s after a life of farming. So they're all uh, finding their way at different moments and all a really unique and interesting period of life. 
I love the quote you included of Diane Nyad um, said at every at every phase of your life, um, look at your options. Please do not select boring ones. And I feel like <laughs> this just gives us all of these different stages of life and discoveries. It gives you so much hope. And I think inspiration as well as like, if you know, if you haven't achieved your dreams yet and you're 20 or 30 or 40, you know, you just start when you're ready. <laughs> right. I think it gives you that inspiration for sure. It certainly gave it to me. And then I think the big lesson is there's really no expiration date on your potential or on your own creativity. You, you I think often put your own dates on it or society tends to see kind of an uphill and then a down at a certain age. And I think what these stories prove is that you can keep going up. It may change the way you do it. it may, your energy may change, but you you don't need to um, think that things are going to go downhill. And you certainly don't need to give yourself an expiration date that may put you, um, you know, sort of on a downward trend that you don't need to be on. You may be able to keep going in a certain direction and in a new direction. In your introduction to the book, you talk about these four different elements that make up genius, uh, intelligence, creativity, perseverance, and luck. How did you identify those as, as markers of genius? Did they kind of emerge organically as you were looking at all of these people? Well, I interviewed many, many experts in the field. And interestingly, genius is not, you can't go get a PhD in genius. It's not, a, it's not an area of science um, that is come, comes together in one subject. It really is disparate um, pieces of um, human behavior, science coming together all um, at once. And you kind of have to study all those different elements. So in, study, in listening and talking to experts in the field, these are the things that rose up, the idea that there's some kind of intelligence and it may not be um, IQ. So there's interesting information that IQ is not necessarily going to dictate a successful outcome, but it could be a different kind of intelligence, an intelligence for music or an intelligence in terms of how you interact with people. I mean, Shirley Temple is one of the people I write about. Her ability to um, interact with others, even adults at a very early age, was really something that she had in her. Um, creativity is kind of an amalgamation of, uh, I'm sorry, imagination, looking out, being open to new experience, and interestingly comes to the fore in different stories in different ways. Yo-Yo Ma's creativity, he talks a lot about being open to new experiences, and that sort of made him able to use his music in new creative ways, not just to play, but to travel around the world and raise awareness about interesting issues. So it's it's creativity can be many different forms, not just necessarily artistic. Perseverance and having grit and sort of stick-to-itiveness Eleanor Roosevelt, who I write about, had a really difficult childhood, um, as did Maya Angelou, but both were able to kind of seize and muster a sort of um, determination and grit and ability to move forward in their lives really significantly in midlife and, and later life. And then luck is just a wonderful thing because we can all count on it or hope that it will happen to us in some different way at some time. And it comes to the fore in, in so many of the stories. I mean, Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin, is an obvious one because it was lucky that um, this mold dropped into his Petri dish. But on the other hand, he was prepared for luck. And I think that's a big lesson that luck comes to those who who are ready to to seize it. So I love I love luck and serendipity. And it, it comes up in every story that I every story I write in the book. It does. And, you know, one of the things I I, I so enjoyed um, in this book were finding these very unexpected connections between people, which I think like speaks to luck in some ways. But, you know, I, I didn't know that um, Isaac Newton was born the same year that Galileo died. Um, I, I loved reading about Eleanor Roosevelt going flying with Amelia Earhart. Just those those things were so surprising and um, 
and, and I loved reading about them. Uh, but you also talk a lot about uh, how people, you know, form connections with mentors at opportune moments. And some of that does really seem connected to the idea of luck, the luck of meeting the right person at the right time, being in the right place at the right time. So I'm, I'm curious about what all of this says about the role of human connection in, in genius, you know, both in terms of those unexpected connections between people that you found and, and, and how that speaks to what ultimately happens with their work. Yeah, I love that question. It's it's true. There are wonderful connections. And um, you think about Picasso, I mean, his his luck and his connection was to be born to an artist. I mean, his father was an artist and was able to teach him early on um, the right kinds of skills to get him going. And then he kind of outpaced his father. But that was that was a mentor and a connection that was so important to him. Same with Yo-Yo Ma, whose father was a violinist. His mother was a singer. So there was music just, you know, infiltrating the family. And then you have um, the luck of, you know, in a way, Isaac Newton's whole experience during the plague, and it really, we can really identify with this now during the pandemic, but he was forced out of Cambridge um, during the plague of 1665 and went to his family home. And this is the place where you can visit this place. It's a beautiful rural place where you can really think it's quiet, it's beautiful. And he went up into his bedroom and out into the gardens and thought through all of these theories and ideas he was thinking about at the time. And so um, the connection there was actually place and also kind of an escape from um, the burdens of being around other people, kind of an ironic twist on the connection. Um, The story of Maya Angelou's uh, memoir first being discovered, you know, she tragic experience. She was celebrating her 40th birthday and hears about the assassination of Martin Luther King on the same day. And um, her friend, James Baldwin, the poet, comes a few days later and says, you've got to get out, takes her to dinner at the home of Jules Pfeiffer, who's a cartoonist, a famous one, and his wife, Judy, who was an editor. And Maya Angelou starts telling her story and Judy connects her to this editor, Robert Loomis, who's a really storied editor in New York. And he gets her to write her first memoir. So that was a very serendipitous kind of experience, a connection that just happened by chance. She told her story. And then finally, I I love the Grandma Moses um, sort of look and connection. Her paintings were a hobby um, in her 70s, and she took them down to the local drugstore one day by chance. Um, Somebody just traveling through, a kind of amateur collector saw them, really liked them, bought them, took them to New York, shopped them around. Most of the um, dealers in New York had no interest because she was approaching 80 and why would they want to represent an artist um, who was already that old but she found he found someone in um, a dealer named Otto Kalir who loved her work and thus became her career he took her on and at 80 she had her first show and had a two-decade international career so these kinds of moments are just wonderful and um, you can kind of trace them through the book and each one is so different but those connections are so important I love that story of, of grandma Moses and her going to the city and just like, like, it's pretty busy here. I like the country yeah. better, but that's just, she's making her, her career. Um, yeah. Selling her art there. Yes. Her um, straightforwardness is really phenomenal. You can read her, her own memoir and it's just a, um, a lesson and you don't have to be fancy or, you know, frilly in your writing or your thoughts. She just tells it like it is. And she is a great example of that. Absolutely. So one of the things that you quote, you mentioned Picasso um, just a moment ago, which was an incredible chapter. Um, And and in that chapter, you are quoting psychologist Ellen Winner's phrase saying that 
Picasso in general, but, but in the geniuses, they have a rage to master their disciplines. Can you describe this rage a little bit and why it's so important and sort of, or how the rage becomes passion, say for midlifers like Julia Child um, and late bloomers? Yes, I love Ellen Winner's phrase, rage to master. It's, <clears throat> it really um, encapsulates it so well. So she studies prodigies, specifically art prodigies, and she noticed that this they have this distinguishing um, behavior, which is that they tend to be advanced at something or good at something like art. They then keep doing it because they like it and then they get better at it. So they're they're expanding and improving on these skills very early. But they also have this, it sort of leads almost to this rage to master, which is that you can't get them away from it. So they, they want to conquer it. And you know, you can't, they don't want to have breakfast. They want to sit and draw. They don't want to go to sleep at night. They want to sit and draw. So there's this kind of earnest interest that goes well beyond the typical focus or interest, especially of a child who they're often distracted quickly, but the children that she sees have this rage to master and this ability to focus. Um, Picasso certainly seemed to have it and it comes out in so many of these people. And I think in later years, it sort of becomes, like you mentioned, Julia Child, her first really whiff of French cooking is in her mid thirties. And it just goes, it just immediately um, captivates her and she becomes absolutely engrossed in it starts taking cooking lessons in Paris at the Cordon Bleu and just completely immerses herself. And I think for her, she had really wondered what she would become. And as a college student and, and even after college, sort of bemoan not having any specific idea of what she wanted to be. Um, so in a way she was waiting for it. You know, when, it, when she found her interest in cooking, it became, it sparked this passion. And then she did rage to master, which she did over the next several decades. So it's it's such an interesting concept and and I love the idea of it. And I feel like her her struggle in that chapter you talk about her directionless period and you say it was a time of uncertain ramblings when insecurities surge and doubts begin to plague and I was like, well, that, that's my life and everybody's life I know and it was just so it felt so real, which I think was really lovely because sometimes we get so distanced from anybody who is a prodigy or a genius or something, but that just felt so human to me. Yes, I think it's so important to tell, um, you know, these stories of, of human beings and all of their their doubts and um, lack of confidence that plagues everybody, usually at some point in their lives, you often hear only of the good, the good and the success, right? So you hear about these stories, and you know about the big successes, and you know about the great achievements, you see the paintings, you hear the music, but you don't know the backstories and the kind of zigzagging and the emotional torment that sometimes happens. And that's what I love about writing about these people in the first book in Andy Warhol, same idea that you were kind of looking in through the lens of biography to people whose lives were not um, exactly what you thought, that they all had, in some cases, real mental health conditions that were challenging to them. And in this book, the idea that you suddenly find it and you're off and running, you know, it's never really that way. It's always a path of, um, you know, some, some bumps and some diversions. And I think knowing that as a reader and being able to go through these stories of these people like you know, Julia Child and, and Eleanor Roosevelt and all of these wonderful people and learn the, the backstory is, is really important for all of us. It should make us feel not only inspired, but also kind of reassured that the path we're on, you know, we may be, I think what's really important also is we may be in a period during a path where things are, um, you know, adjusting, where we're exploring and we don't yet know. And sometimes when you're in the middle of that, we panic, but it's a part, it's a normal part of the journey and being able to kind of say to yourself, 
I'm in it, but that doesn't mean it's going to last forever. Um, I'm going to come out the other end can be really reassuring. What, one of the things you were talking about there that, that I also really enjoyed in this book was seeing how much goes behind those eureka moments. You know, you talk about how Isaac Newton sees an apple falls, fall and suddenly understands gravity, but, uh, but what you don't think about and, and what I really enjoyed reading about in this book was seeing all of the years of study and thinking about these things and kind of percolating on them that go into those, those, those like big aha moments that are the ones that we, that we all know and, and associate with these figures. Right. But, but there's, but seeing how much, how much goes is behind that and, and how many often years of thinking about these kind of things that go into those, those very singular moments. Yes. And importantly too, that, you know, if you look at sort of talk to the scientists about it, you, you, if you focus solely on what you're trying to get at, you may not succeed. You really need diversions because you need time to think. And you also need time away. You know, the idea that Sometimes your best ideas come on a walk or in the shower. That's true because the, the information comes in and has to kind of simmer. And if you focus only on it, um, you sometimes stymie it. You almost need to have to, to step away. And then, you're kind, and then you let your brain do its work because your brain is a phenomenal, um, has a phenomenal ability to, to, you know, to sort of go through that information and let those ideas surface. So it's um, the Eureka moment is, is not, it's never just happens out of the blue. It always happens with preparation and understanding and often years of study. And it's interesting because you have the balance of the eureka moments or the finding the passion, like we've mentioned, Julia Child, but also having a strong memory seems to be like this huge thread throughout. I'm thinking particularly of Picasso, whose memory was like a steel trap and he's using things from, from his childhood all the, through his nineties and Yo-Yo Ma who memorized all his music. Um, Grandma Moses, who liked to write, uh, paint about the, I like her term, the old timey things. Yeah. Um, you know, so can you talk a little bit how about how memory serves as such a strong role in in these folks's lives and creativity? Yes, I mean memory is the kind of you know fuel in a way that gets you to the point of being able to grasp those things you know about. So you, so Picasso, as you mentioned, he remembered the the orange and the and the orange trees in his hometown of Malaga, Spain, and the sort of sounds and the colors of that town. And he incorporated that into his work. He built things out of memories of, of going to see the bullfights and Yo-Yo Ma learning music by studying, his father taught him study, studying just a bar at a time so that he could build his memory, basically, you know, essentially training his memory from a very early age. And, um, you know, Shirley Temple, there's something also called working memory, which is the ability to remember things and do things at the same time, essentially, to put it very simply. So her ability to, to go on stage and remember the lines she needed to say, but also where she needed to stand on stage. So it's it, memory does serve such a critical um, role in creativity. It's kind of what you draw on and use as your as your power and your fuel for whatever you're going to do next. And there's wonderful studies in memory and um, how memory works. It's in the hippocampus part of the brain and what it means to draw on that, but also the idea that you can I think to some degree train your memory and you can you know you can work on sharpening your memory and you can consciously say to yourself even at times i want to remember this moment and kind of um solidify memories in your brain so memory does serve a a really really interesting role in creativity i love that part too because it pops up in all of these different stories kind of taking a step back and looking at at this book as a whole 
was it challenging to approach a project like this when you're writing about so many very well-known people, many of whom have been written about over and over again? So you're kind of looking at so much research, but also kind of finding a new angle. Was, was that a challenge? Yes. I mean, it's always a challenge. It can be very intimidating, but it's also really um, a wonderful sort of experience of, of, you know, my own creativity, be able to look at their stories and through the lens of my own specific interest, which is how did their life journey evolve? What were the moments that were important? What were the connections? What were the arcs? Where was the creativity? So being able to use um, not only biographies that already exist, which of course I read, but you know, with the help of an incredible internet right now in terms of digital um, resources, being able to read stuff that was written by Newton and his contemporaries online and being able to, in fact, interview family members of Picasso. And I wrote about Sarah Blakely, who's the um, entrepreneur who founded Spanx and interviewing her and talking to family members, um, interviewing people like the, the son and daughter of Shirley Temple. So going beyond just the information that's out there and being able to talk to family members, being able to investigate primary sources like letters and journals, um, and then, you know, pulling it together in the way I'm interested in, in seeing it. So in shaping it, you know, everybody who comes to biography is going to shape it a certain way. And I mean, the biggest challenge is doing so many people because you want to, I have reams and reams of, of notes that never made it into the, into Spark because you just can't fit it all in. Um, so that's one of the most challenging things, but I love also being able to connect chapters and themes. And, you know, if you're just writing a biography of one person, you're not really doing that. And being able to connect two different people who have, you know, I, I mentioned, I think, in the introduction that Isaac Newton and Picasso were both born um, so feeble that, that their families thought they would were dead. I mean, that is just those kinds of just weird little connections. Um, Shirley Temple visited Eleanor Roosevelt at her um, home in New York. So being able to thread some of that together makes it my own unique approach to these stories. And I think the book really gives people a new window into their lives. And you have such a range of talents here, all, all different music, art, but also business and physics and, and all sorts. And so you're, you cover 13 geniuses. You also mention a, a load of incredible people sort of kind of in passing as you, as you go through the pages. And I'm sure, were there folks that you really wanted to profile that you couldn't fit in? Because it sounds like you already had your hands full with these 13. I know there's always so many people that you could do. I mean, the, the reason I chose those I did was I wanted to have a real, you know, an arc from Prodigy to Late Bloomer. So I wanted all the years in there. So if you look at the years, it's like Picasso from age three to um, Bill Gates at age 13, discovering computers to Fleming at 47, up to Grandma Moses. So it really covers every decade of life. I did want, as you said, this range of, of interest because for readers, I mean, it's much more interesting if you're going to read biographies, why don't I just give you a physicist that you might not otherwise read about in the, you know, in the scheme of these stories instead of 12 artists or 12 writers. I thought it was really important to to um, mix it up so that readers would enjoy learning about different livelihoods at the same time as they learn about the different people. So, you know, there are Yo-Yo Ma, for example, for music, I could have picked Mozart. He would have been an obvious one for, for music. Um, but I thought, you know, he has, people have written about him, obviously, a lot. He's an older figure. 
And in my first book, Andy Warhol, What's a Hoarder, I didn't do contemporary figures. They were all historic figures. In Spark, I thought, you know, it'd be really nice to change that up a little bit too and get at some of the newer contemporary figures. So I do have three in here, um, Yo-Yo Ma, Bill Gates, and Sarah Blakely. And that way I was able to actually interview living people um, who could give me their perspective on these ideas. So yes, there are plenty of people that <laughs> I could have included, um, but I felt like these kind of rose up to the top once I laid them out. It was almost like putting a puzzle together, a mix of men and women, a mix of livelihoods, a mix of ages, and a mix of professions. Fantastic. This was a lot of fun to read. Thank you so much. Yeah, the whole puzzle really does come together very well. It was it was a really fun read, and we really appreciate you uh, coming out and talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.